Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Mike Cassie. Mike is an incredible president and founder of Tiger Comms, a leading clean tech firm. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Mike Casey, and I run the clean economy marketing and public affairs firm named TigerCom here in the U.S. And we have clients that are headquartered all over the world in Asia and Europe and here in the US. And we help companies improve their lead flow, their investment flow, and secure fair treatment from both communities and and policymakers. Okay. That's really interesting. So how did you get started in your career? I read a book. I read a book called The 29th Day by Lester Brown. This is in the first year of university. And at the time, Mr. Brown was the foremost environmental trends counter on the planet. And his book basically made the case that we are going to hit the wall ecologically as a planetary civilization because we're treating our pantry like a toilet and we're living off the the principle instead of the interest from the natural resource base. And I decided then that I would devote my life to addressing that problem as best I could. So I spent about 10 years in politics another 12 years in the environmental NGO world. And then for the last 19 years, I've built and run this firm. And it's purpose-built to uh, help companies that are in the clean economy space, as we call it, wind, solar, battery storage, EV fast charging, et cetera, grow to become the mainstream incumbents. Okay. Interesting. You were saying that you were you were in politics. How did you get into that? Messily. <laughs> That's probably the best way to say it. I got into it because I realized that if I wanted to learn how Americans' opinions were developed and mm-hmm. how they were shaped, the best place to start was in the intersection of communications and public policy, and that's known as politics. So I started working for a state senator, a, a, a senator to a state legislature or assembly or parliament, if you will. And from there, I went up the ladder and I've worked for a U.S. congressman. I've worked for a U.S. senator. I've worked on two presidential campaigns. I've worked on several statewide candidate campaigns and I've worked for, I think, 18 or 19 different ballot initiatives. Those are here in the States when we put an idea or a policy on a ballot for voters to decide on directly. And that's usually done at a state level. And I've done about 18, 19 of those ballot initiatives. Right. That is really impressive. So who was your role model? And why did you find them inspirational? Good question. I think my inspiration now, my strongest inspiration are my two kids. And what I have is a almost endless sense of responsibility. Let me restate that. Are we, are we tape? Is this audio only? And are we taping? I want to make sure I'm looking at the camera for, if we're video. As no, well. it's just, it's not video. I'm not that brave. No, it's just audio. <laughs> Excellent. Good, good, good. All right. All right. You asked a question that I'm going to break into two parts with your yeah. permission. You asked me who my mentors were and you yeah. asked me how I found them inspiring. Yeah. 
the short answer is I've, I've had too many mentors to name and account. I look back and I'm really moved by the generosity of so many people who took their time to coach me in small and big ways over the years. I mean, I've been doing what I'm, I do for a living. I've been doing it for 39 years and I still have mentors and I'd say like six, seven that I routinely turn to for advice and they are great teachers, but the inspiration that I get comes from several sources. I would say first and foremost are my kids. I have a a real sense that we are in a race against time to solve global climate destruction as a problem. And it's their lives and livelihood that are on the line. I mean, it's clear now that the speed with which this crisis is unfolding and growing will definitely affect you and I before we get put in the ground. But it's our kids who are really going to bear the weight of our energy profligacy, our wastefulness, and our willingness to just contaminate the biosphere. And I think as someone who's participated and benefited from the current system, it's my responsibility to do what I can to help course correct. And I'd also say the people that I work with here at this firm are ongoing sources of inspiration. We have this remarkable team of people here, not the least of which is my, my number two, Melissa Baldwin. And they just, they're committed and they're upbeat and they're professional in the face of really dire planetary direction. And I just find them a source of renewal. When my commitment flags, I look at them and I, and I get re-inspired. Okay. Thank you. What is the most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? I love what I do for a living. I don't like how many hours a week I have to do it. It's a challenge because you're one, running a business. So ultimately all the responsibility rolls up to me. Number two, what we do it matters. Certainly the issue that we have mission built ourselves around is global critical. And I think we have not a small broom to kind of help sweep up the mess that's been made. And getting that right, expressing our professional commitment to planetary progress through our client successes means that we're devoting ourselves to coming in every day and performing at a really high level. And they pay for us to do that for them. So I feel responsible to deliver well, but there are also people who are up to amazing things. We have a client that their technology alone could knock out 15% of the world's global carbon pollution footprint. They're going to succeed if I have anything to say about it. So I'm going to devote myself to that. So the work in and of itself is demanding. Doing it by running a business adds another layer of demand. And then the stakes that we're playing for raise them still further. So those are the three sources of the load and the significance we give it. Mm -hmm. How do I deal with that? I deal with that through a number of practices. I'll say my latest technique I've found is what Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Buddhist monk, taught as mindful walking. Okay. It sounds kind of crazy, but he taught a way of walking that was very slow. 
You do it without phones or electronic stimulation. You can do it for just five minutes. You take a step and you inhale. Your next step, you exhale. Inhale, exhale. You do it outside. It is remarkable how five minutes of quiet, fully intentional walking to no particular place is an amazing reset. It's just an amazing reset. The second thing I do to deal with it is I, I'm a pretty devoted Brazilian jiu-jitsu player, as we call it, or fighter. Like mm-hmm. I, I've been involved in Brazilian jiu-jitsu for 20 years, and I find it is a incredible source of life lessons that are highly applicable to my work. And the third is I'm a 40-year meditator. So I, I, I'm a daily meditator. And without that, I, I'd be, I, I wouldn't be able to do this. Okay. So, because you've had quite a diverse career, as we were talking about before, what has been your career highlight? Mm, there's lots of them. I've been involved with a successful political endeavors, and that election night when your outcome is coming to fruition, it's pretty exciting. I've had varying levels of agency in those political campaigns. Some I've just played an ancillary role. A few I've played a more central role. We have here at the firm been involved with companies going public, just next track or just last week went public, smashing success. And that was incredibly gratifying because it's it's an amazing company with an amazing leadership team. And to see them get their just desserts out in the marketplace, even though we played a, a small role in that success, it's incredibly gratifying. And I think the thing that I find the most gratifying is when we're introducing ideas to the clean economy about how to communicate better Mm. and you gradually see those ideas being uptaken by others, Mm. sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. That's really cool. But I'll just say, I just like the nature of the work. I think one of the reasons we've stayed a modest sized specialty shop instead of a big global firm is because I like warm tool belt. I really like doing the work. I enjoy working on the business, but I really like client strategy at client companies. And I just like seeing clients win. It's it's a very cool thing. And it never just never gets old. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So with the clean economy, what kind of initiatives do you see being taken up? I'm sorry? With the clean economy, what kind of initiatives do you see being implemented by different uh, organizations or people? That we originated or just in general? Just in general. I think there is a gradual yielding of the presumption of merit and organic fate Uh that our companies started with. They really, a lot of our companies started off thinking, we're solar energy, we're the good folks, good things will happen to us as a result. Marketplaces and policymakers will reward us because we are the good folks. Mm-hmm. We're not doing obviously better things. And that's just not how systems are set up. Even in Western democracies with marketplace economies, incumbent sectors always begin to weaponize government influence and propaganda and disinformation to protect market share. Always. All the incumbents do. Around decade six or seven of their existence, they begin picking up ways to 
protect their market failings by using government to hold off competitors. And this is absolutely happening in real time in clean economy here in the US, 100%. Okay. And my sector started off really in a state of denial and disbelief, and that's gradually yielding to a clearer view that we face incumbents that we are disrupting. So I think the big shift is our sector started seeing themselves, started off seeing themselves as industries, new industries, but they're actually new sectors within existing industries dominated by powerful incumbents. And that's not an insignificant difference because if you're a new industry, if you're Google, if you're mm-hmm. going to start new search engines you know, 25 years ago, who are you disrupting? The telephone book, the, the people who make telephone books, okay? The people who sell newspaper advertising. There's lots of people you'll disrupt, but it's not like a one-for-one obvious displacement. Okay. Here, the power markets are something approaching a zero-sum game. If I sell more electrons in a fixed demand market, you sell fewer. And the gas industry here in the U.S. is not going to go quietly into the night. I don't see the natural gas industry saying, hey, you know what? You're right. We've been screwing up the planet. We'll stop. There's no planet B. We're just going to go away and become home energy service companies. Thanks. Take the field. It's not going to happen. They're going to, they're, they're going to do what I, they're going to engage in what I call cornered animal syndrome. Let me restate that. The gas industry is behaving like a cornered animal. They're backed into a corner. They've got sunk capital costs and the trillions of dollars. They're not going to just say, yeah, you know what? Take the field. Here it is. It's not going to happen. So they're fighting very aggressively. And that's the way capitalism works here, at least in the U.S. And either you can sit in the corner and cry in the fetal crouch position, or you can get out and actually put gloves on and, and throw some hands because somebody's winning and somebody's losing. And if I have anything to say about it, my guys are going to win. Okay. I think it's the same as in any industry. There's always there's always winners and losers, though. Correct. Thank you for that. How does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? <laughs> That's good. I don't know. I'm 58, so young boy was quite a long time ago. Mm. <laughs> more, more than I want to say. I think the most applicable period of my youth to the question you asked is, I think around last year of high school, first year of college, what you call university there, I I had a hunger to start being good at something. I wanted to find at least one thing in this world I could really devote myself to and be as good as I can possibly be at it. So it was interesting when I turned 50, I read Malcolm Gladwell's The Outliers, very famous book here. It's about high performers in all fields of human endeavor. And he had a passage in there where he said around 10,000 hours on any given field of human endeavor, one can achieve mastery. And I did a back of the envelope calculation, and I realized then that I had reached 65,000 hours of intentional practice at my craft. I'm probably at 70,000 hours now, I'm guessing. This is not exact science that I'm going to win a Nobel Prize for, mind you, but that was the back of the envelope calculation. And so I think that means, given I still like it 39 years later, I chose well. And I don't know that I am extraordinarily talented at this, but I am 
extraordinarily concerned about planetary direction. So if you take average to slightly above average talent and you give it an exceptional level of commitment and focus, you at least have to end up being pretty good at it. I think that's the general rule. So even a even a organic mediocre person like me can reach fairly high levels of proficiency if you drill in and work hard on it. And that I think is how my vision from youth has unfolded in my adult life. Okay. No, interesting. Thank you. If you were going to hire anybody, what would make an outstanding hire? My line of work overtly rewards the attributes of the extrovert. Okay. Comfort in your skin, willing to take chances and speak up, speaking truth to perceive power, and being willing to be with people as they are rather than insisting that they be something they're not. Okay. The quiet little secret in my line of work is it also demands an almost obsessive level of attention to detail. So what I find is the ideal person that comes to work here not only wants to be here and sees him or her in a career as a clean economy communicator, but they also have that rare combination of extroverts, qualities, and introverts' attention to detail. Okay. Okay. No, interesting. It is. I think it is quite important to be able to talk up. A lot of people find that hard to do. Very, very. I say that as a, I'm a lifetime ADHDer. Both my kids are ADHDers. And I know that our brains are not wired for detail attention. I think it was a survival trait 10,000 years ago when you could, when you were like, could take in extra levels of stimulus and pay a lot of attention and process it quickly. Uh-huh. Now in an electronic and overstimulated world, it's definitely a handicap, particularly when it comes to detail management. So Yes, it's a it's a rare combination. It's really hard for folks like me. Okay. No, I think it's hard for a lot of people as well. I was speaking to another person, a couple of people the other the other week about it, and they were saying that um, that even when they were starting their career very young, they always felt that they could they felt safe in the company that they were working with, that they were able to speak up be heard whereas yeah being quite young in your career or any time of life it's still quite hard to speak up i would think yes yeah and it it took me a while to develop the the groundedness to know that it's okay not to know stuff and in fact the older i get the more i realize i should be curious about things and certain about very few things and that shift has actually given me a fair amount of inner peace and the confidence to be ignorant when I am and the confidence to speak up when I feel expertise when I have it. I think so. I think you only get that as you get older, though. I think so. Not everybody knows everything. And that's why it's uh, important to have a good team around you of experts, no matter what field you are. Yeah. Yes. So have you had any career disasters and how have you handled them? How long you got? As long as you need. <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcast would triple in length if I went into them. I think I'll summarize. There's been several times when, always in haste, I haven't crossed a T or dotted an I in communicating with allies or 
clients or media outlets, and it's caused problems. But the through line through all of them have been not paying attention to details, being in too much of a hurry to get something done, and imbuing that particular task with excessive importance. Instead of detaching a little bit, seeing the task for what it is, and just clear-eyedly seeing the solution. Okay. Is there anything in your career that you still want to achieve? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Planetary sustainability within two generations. That's my mission in life, and I haven't gotten there yet. And I, and I, want, I want Darren Woods, the CEO of ExxonMobil, to be out of a job and having to apply to me for a summer internship. That's what I want. Very good. <laughs> do you think either of them or the, the, first, uh, the first one, do you think that will be achievable, though? Confucius said, better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. So, I don't know. But I know that I have a pickaxe. I know the rock pile that I go to every day. And I know I got arms to swing that pickaxe. That's what I'm doing. And how fast I break the rocks, that's not up to me. Okay. What is your zone of genius? What are you most excellent at? That's a great question. I don't know if it's the superlative you're looking for, but the thing I notice that comes easiest to me is conceptual articulation on the fly. It comes pretty fast and easy to me. Is it the is it the thing that I'm the best at? I don't know. You probably ask the people around me. They have a better view than I do. And I think also I would say largely because of jujitsu, mm-hmm. I've lost all fear of clients. Just don't client prospects, client CEOs. I've been around enough high net worth individuals, enough CEOs, enough people in positions of influence that though I'm I'm just a service provider. You know, I'm a I'm a servant of many, a master of few. I'm not. I don't have any intimidation about famous, wealthy, or influential people being around them and giving it to them straight. It doesn't. I'm not phased at all. And I think that's just because of the many life benefits that jujitsu has brought. It's it's that it resets what's hard. You know, like I'm, I'm around as an older guy, I'm around young pro fighters all the time. Like I actually know what it's like to be across, <laughs> to be in proximity and actually be competing with somebody who is genuinely dangerous, like physically dangerous. So when you get that, then you think, hey, you know what? This is actually just a conversation between two humans and we have different business cards, but it's just a conversation like it's OK. You know, I'm not going to. Nothing terrible is going to happen out of this conversation, even if I have to tell a client something that they don't want to hear, but I think it's a service to them to be told. And I don't care whether we get one piece of business or not. That's okay either. I'm out for fits and I'm out for results. I'm really not out for, I'm not out to empire build at all costs. Okay. No, that's that's really uh, noble because there is. I mean, I know when I started my podcast, I was quite nervous about speaking to all the different CEOs that I encountered. So if you take away the title, everybody's, we're all, just all the same. We're just all right. human. Just one human talking to another. Yeah. No one's, no one's dying today. No one's shooting anybody else. No one's like, if, if, you're on the, if you're on the front lines in Ukraine, you got something to be worried about. And just last night, I connected with a woman on LinkedIn and she wrote an article about what it had been like to choose to work while she and her husband 
separately were diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Oh, no way. And they have a toddler. Oh, no, that's terrible. Each one of them has a 12% chance of survival. That's what she says in the piece. It's a one in a hundred million chance that she and her husband both got the same type of cancer. And within 18 days, they got the diagnosis. She has it hard. She's got a problem. I just have inconveniences. And I, I said to one of my staff last night as he was leaving, I said, he said, good night. And I said, hey, you know what? The next time you hear me whining or complaining about something, just say this woman's name to me. I don't know exactly what it, I need a reminder to say, we have inconveniences. We don't have problems. So and I actually told her that I was going to use her as an ongoing inspiration because she laid the whole thing out in an article. Really cool. Okay. I'm going to look at that article. Okay. Casey, P- Casey Peters is her name. She put it up. It's incredibly courageous. And the grace and poise with which she described the situation was, it just blew me away. It blew me away. I'm going to look at that article because it is true. We all have problems in our life, no matter who we are. Whether we all, but we all think that our problems are the worst because we're living them every day. You don't take into it's only when you start and stop and look around and talk to other people that you see that maybe our minor problems aren't so big after all. Oh, it's yeah. I want to post you the article here because it's so moving. It's it's really it's it's amazing. It's like it's she's an amazingly courageous person here. Here you go. Okay. Thank you. She's got an article on LinkedIn. I'm looking right now. It says, everybody dies. I'm just doing it on LinkedIn. Oh, wow. So. It is inspirational. It's incredible. It's just incredible. And what do you say? You know, like, yeah, the world is careening toward global environmental disaster. That's going to change humankind as we know it. It's going to challenge the very existence of whole nation states. And that's really awful. And Putin's a monster who's invaded Ukraine and is inflicting incredible suffering on his people and the Ukrainian people and trying to upset around the world. That's awful. And yet here in our chairs, you, Michelle, and I, we we have agency to make a difference in problems and we get to go home and put our heads down at night knowing we don't have a ticking time bomb somewhere in our body that's going to go off in a, in a year. You know, like it's just an incredible liberation that we can actually go live our lives try to make a difference and lean, put our shoulders to the wheel on the most important problem humankind has ever faced. It's going to affect hundred percent of humanity, a hundred percent. And it's barreling down on us. There's no arguing, arguing with the problem. If, if you are grounded in reality, you can't argue with the problem. So you just got to put your shoulder to the wheel and drive. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It is all about making a difference, sharing knowledge and making a difference. I agree. So who do you depend on the most? My wife, our CFO, amazing woman, absolutely amazing woman, and incredible life partner and a great executive team partner. My number two, Melissa Baldwin, is fantastic. Just could not ask for better. And then we have a kitchen cabinet of friends of the firm. We call it friends of the, friends of tigers. And I... I I'd be remiss. One of my best friends in life, Peter Kelly, is um, he runs a he runs a actually runs a competing firm, quasi competing firm here in this metro area. But he just he's just a constant source of like inspiration and sounding board. Um, got a couple other really close friends in the industry that are just great 
sounding boards, Kristen Kirsch at Next Tracker, Steve Bowers just left Apex and Brian Lynch. They're just tremendous, incredibly smart people. And when I got a problem and I need peer feedback, those are my go-tos. And, okay. and I, that's, a, that's a subset of the list. There's, the list is quite a bit bigger. Okay. Thank you. What type of work do you always delegate? Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. What do I delegate? I delegate scheduling. Okay. I delegate research. I delegate post-interview production of our podcasts. Delegate a lot of client work oversight. I think those are the bigs. There's some others that those that's what I usually delegate. Okay. Interesting. Okay. When you were working as a political senator, who did you work under? I just wondered. Yeah, no worries. And just to be clear, I was never a senator. I worked for a U.S. senator. So, okay. Uh, sorry, sorry if that deflates your picture. Yeah. So I was I was a spokesman for a U.S. senator. Yeah, but I was a spokesman for a U.S. congressman. I was not the office holder. I just want to be really clear about that. Okay. But that's still really impressive. When you were working in politics, who was is it in office? Is that what they say? Who was yes. in office at the time? Yeah. Well, who did I? There were a bunch of people in office at the time, but the people I worked for, I worked for a gentleman named Congressman Terry Bruce. He okay. represented what was then the 19th Congressional District of Illinois. Okay. I also worked for a U.S. Senator from the state of Michigan. His name was Don Regal. He was chairman of the banking committee. Very, very influential senator. And I learned some from Congressman Bruce. I was only with him for a year and a half. I learned a ton from from my boss, Senator Regal. Just an absolute ton. I was with him for longer. The work was more intense. I was more empowered. I was a little bit more confident in my career. So I was able to absorb more. I also worked for a congressman named Vic Fazio from California. Rest in peace. He's since deceased. Um, but Vic was the chairman of um, a campaign committee for the Democratic Party here in the U.S. And I worked for him on about 100 U.S. House races at the same time. I've worked for two presidential candidates who ran in their general election races. And I've worked for someone who ended up running for president. I, I, was, I worked on the preparatory phase. Wow before he ran. And then I worked for a U.S. Senate candidate, a state senator named Roger Bedford, who wanted to become the U.S. senator from the state of Alabama, 1996. I worked for him. And I worked for, indirectly worked for a gentleman who was the, who ran successfully for the governor's position here in the state of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe. What was the biggest lesson that you learned when you were working with them? Politics is a competitive sport. It's a competitive sport. It seems exciting. I'm quite excited. It's ex- it's ex- it's exciting like binge drinking is exciting. It's 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 exciting at the time and it's really not good for you. It's it's a <laughs> um I, I should also say I I uh, I we've we've had we've done work for our U.S. Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, before she was Secretary of Energy. She was the governor of the state of Michigan, mm-hmm. and now she's the U.S. Secretary of Energy. I got a, her picture is up there. We got her a TED Talk. And I've worked, I've worked in and around politics for a long time. I've worked in and around or for a lot of people holding elective office. She's definitely 
one of the finer people that I certainly have ever been around. Okay. Amazing. And the only, the only bad thing about her is that she was born in Canada. So she can't run for president because if she was here, I, I draft her for president so fast, make your head spin. Okay. She's amazing. Just an absolutely amazing elected official. I find working in politics quite exciting, but it must be a lot different working in politics to working for yourself. Or has it helped you any? Did politics help me in the work I do now? Yeah. Very much. Politics teaches you to be quick, proactive, creative, and scrappy. As a drunk on a bus told me one time, shy don't get you nowhere. That's what he said to me. Shy. He said, boy, shy don't get you nowhere. It was a different way of saying what Virgil said 2,500 years ago, fortune favors the bold. And if you learn anything in politics, it's to learn that you got to be quick, you got to be proactive, and it's a constantly dynamic environment. And so when you have that as an ethos and you come into corporate communications work, what you notice is a lot of people sleepwalk through their jobs. Uh It's a slower cadence. It's more thoughtful. It's more oriented toward avoiding mistakes rather than achieving victories. That's a a wide generalization, but that's what I found. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. I never really thought about it like that. And, And I'll also say there's way more quirky, weird dynamics in politics and NGO work than in corporate work. I'm not saying the profit motive rationalizes all behavior you find. You get plenty of silly things and odd motivations and kind of stuff that doesn't make any sense, but you get way more of it in nonprofit and political work. There's a lot of people who need therapist couches more than they need a job in politics. A lot of crazy people. You think so? Oh, I know so. I got 25 years of experience, I can absolutely tell you. Okay. I'm speechless. I don't know what to say now. So do you think you have to have a specific type of personality to work in politics then? It helps. You don't need it, but it helps. Okay. No, I'm going to leave it there. No, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm excited. Sorry. (laughs) Closing question. If you could turn back time, what would you change? I'd relax more. Just relax. Just play at stuff. Play hard, but play at it. It's, It's not all deathly serious. Just having this conversation with my son last night. He was he's uh, not happy with his performance in soccer, football, uh-huh. in, your, in your parlance. He's a very, very good player. He's trying out for a team. He's not happy with his tryouts. And I just said, dude, just relax. Like you, you've you've already done all the talent development. You're you're already really good. You've done all the hard work. Just relax. But you know, you're a young person, that's everything's super important. It is. When you get to be when you, when you get to be my age just a few things are important and it's a it's a nice clarity of view it is it is as you get older you get you have more appreciation about time and what really matters actually that's all the questions i have today i would like to thank mike for your time that brings us to the end of another episode thanks for listening and see you next week great michelle this was so much fun That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, 
www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.